Welcome to our Exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Friday, May 15th. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get a quick take on what's going on in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And today's update is on the ESG market and how it's evolved through COVID-19. We'll share a client call from our investment banking division hosted by John Goldstein, who runs the firm's Sustainable Finance Group. John was joined by some of the top investment professionals in the field to discuss how the pandemic has changed the ESG landscape, including how corporations and investors are responding. Over to that call now. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and thank you for joining. This is John Greenwood, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Rebecca Kruger. We're delighted to be able to moderate this call on ESG trends coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. This event is being hosted by Goldman Sachs Investment Banking and Global Markets Sustainable Solutions Councils. Sustainability has remained at the top of the agenda in our client conversations, both with corporates and investors, even in the midst of the current health crisis. In response, Goldman Sachs is broadening its platform to help our clients navigate the rapidly evolving landscape on climate change, corporate governance, and stakeholder engagement. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a real stress test for sustainability. Coming out of it, we expect to see an acceleration of government policies, investor activism, and growth in sustainable investing. Today, we've assembled a group of leading practitioners to share their insights on sustainability. Our goal is for you to walk away from this morning's call with three things. One, practical advice for corporates on the materiality of ESG factors with a focus on corporate social responses and disclosure to stakeholders. Two, deeper insights into how leading investors incorporate ESG into their investment decisions and how this is evolving as a result of the crisis. And finally, an outlook for what comes next and to answer some of the questions we have received directly from our clients. Will we go back to business as usual, or will we see a permanent shift in consumer behavior and shareholder priorities? How will capital allocation decisions change, and will commitments to climate transition continue? How are ESG-mandated funds performing in this downturn? With that, I'll turn it over to Rebecca to introduce today's speakers. Thanks, John, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. We are really excited about the speakers we have lined up, so let's dive right in. From BlackRock, we have Mark Weedman, who is a Senior Managing Director, Head of International and of Corporate Strategy, and a member of the Global Executive Committee. Mark is charged with shaping the firm's strategy and aligning resources, talent, and operating plans to serve clients and to drive growth. From Putnam Investments, we have Katherine Collins, who is Head of Putnam Sustainable Investing. She's responsible for leading Putnam's investment research, strategy implementation, and thought leadership on ESG issues. Catherine is also the portfolio manager of Putnam's two dedicated sustainable equity funds, which have assets of approximately $5 billion. We have the CEO of Just Capital, Martin Whitaker. Founded in 2013 by Martin and a group of leaders across business and finance, Just Capital works with companies on how they can better serve all stakeholders. Martin is in regular dialogue with CEOs and investors, and will discuss the measures he's seen corporates take in response to the COVID pandemic and how he sees the world realigning coming out of the current crisis. And finally, one of our own, John Goldstein, who is the head of Sustainable Finance Group here at Goldman Sachs, where he is responsible for working across the firm to grow our capabilities in inclusive growth and climate transition. 
John, back over to you. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. And so, Martin, we'll start with you. And so, for those who are less familiar, can you give us a quick background on Just Capital and its mission? Sure thing. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rebecca. And hi, everybody. Um, so, Just Capital, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were founded uh, about six years ago. And the mission of the organization is really to build a more just marketplace in America. We believe that business and markets are very definitely forces for greater good and um, very important in addressing major societal challenges. Um, and the way we do that really is through data and analysis and research. Um, over the last six years, we've surveyed um, now about 100,000 Americans on a fully representative basis. Um, to, um, to basically build a picture of what you know, Main Street um, thinks is important, what issues matter when it comes to corporate uh, performance. And those categories of issues basically fall into how a company treats its workers, its customers, the communities where it operates, the environment, and of course, does it make money and is it well-governed and support shareholders? So we think that's a pretty common sense sort of kitchen table set of issues, which are, are, are easily understandable and very intuitive, um, you know, for any business leader, any investor who's looking to find companies that are, are you know, strong and successful. Um, we track uh, ourselves, the Russell 1000 companies. Um, we engage directly right now with about 500 of them gathering data, you know, our job is really to reflect their performances as, uh, as honestly and as openly and transparently as we possibly can. Um, and then from that, with that data, we, we develop uh, indices, we bring, bring lists, our Forbes Just 100 is uh, uh, one of our flagship products. Of course, we launched uh, the Just ETF with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Um, we award the top company the SEAL, um, and being a nonprofit, we're very open for partnerships. You know, we're all about trying to celebrate business leadership, showcase uh, showcase business um, and corporate um, uh, sort of uh, work in supporting stakeholders and allowing users from our from of the Just platform to benchmark performance and uh, and really track what companies are doing across those five stakeholder groups. So that's that, that's really the platform itself, and I would encourage anybody to go check us out at justcapital.com. Great, thanks, thanks, Martin. I know we've had the opportunity to speak a few times um, in advance, and specifically with respect to the uh, recent release of your COVID-19 corporate action tracker. So you stated that the current health crisis has become a litmus test for the value of stakeholder capitalism over shareholder primacy. Um, why has there been so much focus on corporate sustainability practices during a time when most companies are just fighting for survival? Well, I think it's because companies uh, are fighting for survival, because companies are, are, are now very much aware of the importance of protecting their workers, supporting the communities where they operate, uh, making sure their suppliers, you know, all the relationships that a company needs in order to be healthy and strong and be resilient through this period have come to the fore. So it sort of thrust all of those issues 
And I'll give you an example. You know, we, we through our polling, knew that uh, health and safety of workers was a really important issue for many Americans. And so we began to track that years ago. And you know, maybe two or three years ago, sort of interesting data point. Now, of course, it's a critical data point. Um, and we're, we, we, we've created this tracker, which you referred to. It basically um, brings our, our mission into very sharp relief. You know, we're all about putting data first. So that's what we did. We wanted to begin tracking companies in just a very data-based uh, way on how they were performing across, uh, I forget the exact number, 18 to 20 specific criteria, you know, layoffs, furloughs, uh, provision of personal protective equipment, et cetera. Um, and so, so I think just, just gathering the data and tracking that is important. Um, what I think is happening, though, is that as we shift from sort of crisis phase to reopening now, um, it's, it's really important for companies and shareholders to, to pay very close attention to how companies are, uh, are you know, supporting those different stakeholder groups, especially, obviously, frontline workers and customers. And I think what, what's happening is that these sort of S-related issues, the S of ESG, if you will, um, is now be, you know, becoming inc you know, incredibly important, um, not just the ESG investors, but any investor who thinks, you know, I want to make sure the companies that I'm investing in, or if you're a business leader, the companies that I'm running, you know, are really uh, in, a, in, a, in a strong position uh, to come out of this crisis in a, in a healthy way. Uh, no pun intended, but also be able to, you know, uh, create value for all stakeholders going forward. So I think that's, you know, what this has done is sort of spotlight that and make plain why all of those issues are so important today. And I know that you've been highlighting and kind of employee relations for, for some time. Is there anything that has come as a surprise to you um, in terms of the corporate responses you've seen come out of, out of this over the last two months? Well, I, I would say that um, tracking this on a live basis in terms of the human capital elements, you know, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised by just how how incredibly well so many companies have responded. It's sort of, you know, our, our chair, uh, Paul Tudor-Jones, talked on Monday this week as a Robin Hood fundraiser, and he talked about he himself as a you know, as someone who's really trying to do more than he thought he could. And I think that's what we've seen companies do. You know, the immediate reaction around pay, around trying to avoid layoffs, around le business leaders taking pay cuts. So I think, I think the, 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 the humanity of business shone through. And that was, I, I just thought that was uh, a great signal. Crises bring out the best in people as well. And I think it brought out the best in American business. And I think when you look at what, what drives value now and you say, okay, so we're a company that has, you know, um, really supported, you know, these different stakeholders through a crisis. How do we maintain that? How do we capture that and help us, uh, you know, you know, continue our, our, our standing and our positive momentum that we have now with these different stakeholders. How do we capture that 
and turn that into value for the company going forward. Because, we, you know, we don't know, obviously, what's going to happen over the next three to six months. Um, so I just think the lessons learned of the last couple of months are really, really important. And I know many companies are fighting for their own survival. We don't want to judge, you know, rush to judge what's good and bad. Um, we haven't done that. And we, we really tried to highlight what what's working and provide a, a bridge, if you will, an information bridge so that, you know, businesses can, can see what other companies are doing and investors can see sort of across all industries and companies what, what leadership looks like. I, I think that's really important right now. Great. Yeah, so it sounds like you expect there to be a kind of a permanent shift in terms of some of these actions that have come out of the last two months um, going forward. So look, maybe just yeah, a yeah, final I, question. Yep. No, no, I agree. And I, I would say it's not just around sort of the S. If you think about investor relations, you know, governance in companies, finance, you know, uh, you know how companies are seeing the risk landscape going forward. I mean, I, I think all of these issues relate right, you know, they, they really span the entirety of a company's operations at this point. Great. And maybe as a final question, Martin, and, and you've kind of mentioned that over the last um, two months, March, and then even more in April, you've just seen a, a huge increase in the inbound in terms of um, people accessing your data. So, you know, you've obviously Just Capital has been collecting ESG um, data since, since 2015. Um, what, do you, what do you think is kind of most material for, for investors that are um, looking at your data? Well, I just think it's, it's showed us um, the value of real-time, objective, raw data. That's, that, to me, has been the takeaway. We've partnered with Harvard and with Stanford Graduate School of Business to expand the tracker, include more data points, include more companies, and do more analysis on that. And we're, we're really reacting to the market's interest in just getting getting that raw data. And I think it sort of speaks, you know, it's a real lesson learned. You, you know, you, you asked about how does this change the, the landscape going forward? I think sort of, you know, the ESG business, so the ESG industry is very confusing. Um, a lot of skepticism about how really meaningful a lot of that work is. I think this crisis is sort of going to cause us to have a good look at that and say, okay, some things here are ab absolutely very, very important going forward. You know, how you, as I said, how you provide for the safety of your employees, how you think about benefits in the workplace, um, you know, training, things like that. So I think some things will become, uh, you know, have been shown to be material to a company's future success. So I think as, as we come out of this, you know, one of the lessons learned for us will be, you know, what the market really needs is good, authentic, structured data on how companies are doing on the things that, you know, really relate to their their performance now, and as we as we go forward into this sort of new normal, whatever that looks like. Great, uh, thanks, Martin. I think that's a good segue, uh, Rebecca, into um, getting the investor perspective. Absolutely. So, Mark, let's start with you. BlackRock recently emphasized its vision for making sustainability its new standard for investing. That said, you often hear the argument that an ESG-driven investment strategy comes at the expense of returns. So why is, it, why is sustainability so important for BlackRock, and what are you seeing that these other people don't in terms of the connection between sustainability and value? 
Rebecca, first I want to say thanks to Goldman for having all of us, and I want to thank everybody uh, listening in for, for joining us and uh, hearing us out here. So uh, I love where you started because um, fundamentally our clients hire BlackRock to make them money in a risk-aware way. And sustainable investing for us is just about risk, being aware of non-financial risks. So we see our sustainable orientation as just doing our jobs as fiduciaries for our clients. When we look at the investment landscape, we think that we are in the early stages of a fundamental reallocation of capital, especially around climate risk, uh, but more broadly about non-financial risks that investors face. And those risks are investment risks. Climate risk is investment risk whether it's municipal securities or mortgages with 30-year uh, maturities that will be potentially underwater in 30 years. Those are all real parts of risk. And it's why at BlackRock, we've made a fundamental pivot, uh, which is that, A, we, we embrace this reality that non-financial risks need to be at the center of the investment process for us to be good fiduciaries. And we aspire to be the global leader in sustainable investing on that logic. Um, so this question about people saying it's, you have to pay for uh, the sustainable uh, awareness, it's kind of fact-free. If you actually look at the performance of sustainable strategies, uh, they have uh, done at least as well, if not better, over any time period that we're finding. In the most recent time period, we find that 90% of this being this year, 90% of sustainable strategies have outperformed their conventional counterparts. And even when, and of course, hydrocarbons played a role in that, but even when you dig into the energy sector, for example, and you adjust for the price of oil, what we're finding is that financial performance and sustainability linked to these risk factors are helping to explain that outperformance. So actually, for us, sustainable orientation is a critical element of being a fiduciary for our clients and helping them actually be uh, achieve their investment results. Um, and it's actually just being a modern asset manager. So that's really interesting. And as, as we work our way through the current crisis, are you seeing anything in terms of corporate response or observing anything else that is causing you to pivot even slightly in terms of metrics that you're looking at things that you think are more material now than you thought, you know, maybe they were prior to the current crisis? Well, absolutely, Rebecca. I, look, uh, all of us are likely dialing in from home. Uh, all of us are hyper aware of the impact on, of the pandemic on uh, our companies, our employees, our colleagues, our clients, our friends. Uh, so the society uh, and social aspects and the governance aspects of ESG uh, analysis and data are obviously much more important right now than they were, let's say, six months ago in investors' minds. So that's clearly part of it. Uh, but I think we have to remember that uh, ESG was about ESG before, and it's about ESG now. And the E part is also really important for the long-term perspective. Um, and so I, I understand we all feel the pressure of the, of, the, of the moment, the exigencies and emergencies that we're all facing now. But I think we have to remember as we think about being long-term investors, and at BlackRock, we are very long-term investors, that what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. 
That's President Eisenhower's remark. And I think it's an important thing for us to keep in mind as we think about sustainable strategies going forward. So that's a great point. And, you know, on that addressing near-term urgencies versus uh, long-term priorities. You know, as we talk to our corporate clients, it's clearly a all hands on deck and putting out a bunch of fires right now. And so what concerns do you have, if any, of companies potentially deprioritizing certain ESG efforts during the current crisis? And in particular around environmental reporting, which we know is a key priority for you, uh, what's your advice to managing teams that might be struggling to just to simply allocate resources to something like that right now? Well, um, look, we're, we're obviously aware that, like like all of you, we're also having our own struggles to try to actually make sure that we do our basic day-to-day duties as well as we can. So we totally get that. Um, but the important is still the important. So um, while I think we probably all have to be a little bit more patient, about what can be done. Well, we're finding a black rock, whether it's about sustainable reporting or frankly doing our business, is that the important things, we still are able to get done. Through the magic of this technology, allowing us to work together, we're able to do assignments we never thought, we, we, we never imagined we'd be asked to do. And in two weeks, we're up and running, whether it's serving central banks or helping clients access distressed opportunities, whatever it is, we're able to move. So in the same way that corporate issuers have put out record levels of primary in the primary market of debt, I think they can also actually get organized around environmental uh, and other forms of sustainable reporting. Uh, maybe a little bit longer, but I still think it's a critical priority. And the, ur- the urgent priority does not actually ab- obstruct the long-term requirement that we as investors have to know about the risks that companies are presenting. So a little patience, but it's still really important. Understood, understood. And so let's let's talk a little bit about data. Um, could you address just the data and the empirical evidence that you look at and you use to determine if something is a good, quote unquote, good ESG or sustainable investment? And um, you know, the more specific you can be around KPIs or key criteria that you use to measure some of the factors, especially the ones that are potentially less quantifiable. Uh, things around employee engagement or the S of ESG, if you will. Well, Rebecca, BlackRock is a very large place, and we've got lots of investment teams who are approaching ESG analysis with their own tools. So I, what I say refers to broadly what we do across the, the firm and also serving uh, through our Aladdin platform, our asset management and asset owner clients all over the world. So I, I, this is not a how BlackRock invests answer because there is no single single way. Many of our clients ask us to do many different things. I, I think the first thing is we all need to recognize we're on a journey, okay? It took seven centuries to get from Italian tea accounts to IFRS and US GAAP. So I think we all have to be slightly patient as we build out the data and the analytical frameworks for a whole new world of non-financial risk assessment. Uh, our primary external call to companies has been on SASB and TCFD disclosures. And we are already seeing a market pickup in companies' disclosures. By the way, BlackRock itself has had to pick up its own game in, uh, in our own disclosures. We think we've made huge progress, but we have room to grow ourselves. Um, our goal broadly is that whether we are acting as active investors or we are building portfolios for clients, or we're acting as the investment platform for asset managers and asset owners around the world, 
We want to be the best place to do ESG analysis in the whole world. And that means bringing in data and analytics from a lot of different sources, some of which would be about social media uh, and what's trending on social media, which, as we all know, is one of the best ways to get information around what's actually happening inside of companies, not just the disclosures they make or what customers are actually saying about products uh, uh, or the manufacturing processes of a company, for example. Um, But we're also looking at disclosures from companies, and we're looking and trying to incorporate as many different ways of analyzing ESG risks as we can. There are, it's still a very fast growing area. Um, What I'd say is um, the primary area we're looking for for actual data right now that companies need to disclose is around the SASB and TCFD disclosures. Um, And we can use those directly to actually inform better capital allocation choices. And so for companies that are doing a better job on that, tell people, this is a growing and emerging area. I can tell you that BlackRock, for example, we've discovered there's lots of things that we do well, we just weren't telling the world about. And the moment you tell the world, suddenly you get re-ranked. And I think that's a priority uh, for everyone. So look at uh, particularly, I think probably the most influential uh, leaders today um, we'll find, for example, broadly pulling ESG ratings together are the MSCI and Sustainalytics worlds, um, but lots of other players are coming in. So um, uh, it's a big murky area. Uh, we understand that we're on a journey together, um, uh, but for us, the number one priority right now is better disclosure and SASB and TCFD. And so for, uh, so for management teams who are earlier on in that journey of reporting under either of bo- or both of those frameworks, what advice would you give to them in terms of what else they could do or, you know, best practices in terms of engaging with you and your teams? Well, the first thing is, uh, on, and I, I sometimes they engage with companies and talk to the management, and they clearly haven't read what the disclosures require. So I'd start with that for, for the very basic. Uh, and uh, understand what it, look at some disclosures, just get a sense of what actually other companies are doing. Um, second, engage with us. Talk to our stewardship team early and often. Um, one mistake we often see, not just on sustainable investing, but more broadly on any form of engagement with us is to come to BlackRock as a steward of our client's capital at the last minute when you have a proxy problem. Please come to us earlier. The earlier you engage with us on your broad business strategy and on questions around disclosure, we're happy or to help you out. Also, on our side, please give us feedback. We need to learn how to do a better job. Stewardship is becoming incredibly important to our clients, and it's obviously important to the companies on this call. So what we'd say is give us feedback. Uh, we also have a lo- long way to grow. Uh, we have recently assigned a new leader, Sandy Boss, to help lead us globally to the next era of our stewardship. Uh, and it's because we think this is a critically important uh, uh, mission for us, but it means we have a lot to grow on too. Got it. So let, let's let's pivot to um, one of the things that you've said recently in a letter to your clients is that BlackRock would be doubling your offerings of sustainable ETFs and index funds over the next couple of years. And so can you talk about the data and the screening criteria that you're going to be using to apply in terms of selecting companies to include there? Sure. So uh, broadly, uh, with this shift toward ESG investing as really in just investing, uh, we have set out a goal of raising a trillion dollars of sustainably oriented strategies. Now, I want to be clear here. Sometimes for most of what we do, we'll be ESG or sustainable aware. 
which means that we're consciously taking into account risk factors. But when we start to get to sustainably oriented strategies, what we're talking about is where the discount rate, the risk uh, weight being applied to those non-financial risks is higher. Um, and those kinds of strategies, both for us, but also for the industry, are on fire. And we think this is a long-term trend. Just to give you a sense of when I say on fire, we had $9 billion in 2018 uh, in global iShares in uh, sustainable strategies. That was out of about $1.8 trillion. Today, that number is $49 billion two years later, so up by seven, eight-fold uh, in that very short period. Why? Because clients are actually saying, I want to buy companies that are particularly risk-conscious around uh, around sustainable risks. And so what we are, we have a lot of products that we do with MSCI. Uh, we have, we're super excited about what we're doing with S&P. We've announced that we will be doing, effectively, if you think about US equities, you, generally you're probably thinking in S&P terms. And so we'll be offering with S&P a suite of ESG oriented strategies that allow you to invest in small, mid, large cap, but using an ESG orientation and lens. So that's, that's all coming. Um, and it's going to use the full gamut of the ESG factors that you would expect. Got it. And so, Mark, maybe a final question. Longer term, as we start to emerge from the current crisis, how do you think what we've been living through and will continue to live through for the next couple of months, how do you see that impacting your priorities for the next proxy season and specifically for your voting strategy? Well, if it's just a couple of months, Rebecca, I super look forward to taking <laughs> Uh, um, look, uh, what we're looking for in the proxy season is the same set of things that we're always looking for with probably different emphasis. Um, I think this year will be, we always are looking at board quality, for example. Um, but this year, I think there'll be a special effort on corporate strategy uh, and risk management, and then what is horribly called human capital management, or in other words, how are we treating our people? So those are the three factors that we'll be looking at engaging with teams, especially this year. Got it. Very interesting. And Mark, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Great honor to be here. Thank you. So, Catherine, maybe over to you. Um, you know, as an active investor, would love to get your thoughts on how you define and approach ESG investing and the link that you see between ESG and value. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. I think, um, again, speaking as a fundamentally oriented active manager, um, the approach we take is really focused on what are the opportunities that are inherent if companies are managing ESG risks well, or even more importantly, if they're finding a way to create value by either through, through thoughtful management or through creating solutions. Um, so I, I do think it's important to distinguish. We, we use ESG data and ESG language for three different functions that are interrelated, but but also pretty distinct. One is is sort of a compliance function, you know, basic policies, procedures, license to operate kinds of questions. Um, very important, but, but kind of a floor uh, to activity at any given company. And then um, as, as Mark just alluded to and, and Martin as well, there's, there's this layer of risk management, risk mitigation um, for any given enterprise where relevant ESG management disclosure attention is really important. 
The final layer as, as an active manager is the one that's most intriguing to me, and it's where risk starts to tip into actual alpha generation, whether it's financial performance, um, whether it's non-financial performance over time, real value creation uh, that goes above and beyond risk mitigation. And so I, I think some of the challenge for the field is that we intermingle those three functions uh, pretty frequently, and they're all really important, but they're, they're not quite all the same thing. So for our focus as active managers, um, it's really starting with that third bucket uh, in terms of where the, the bulk of our time and attention goes. And Catherine, your your comment on using this this ESG lens to generate alpha on your investments clearly research analysis and data are important. And so ESG data and reporting has come a long way. It's still not perfect. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the data and the KPIs that you and your team are using, whether that's ESG scores from third party providers or any other fundamental fundamental analysis and data that you all look to? Yeah, as as of already been reflected, I, I think it's fair to acknowledge that we're, we're in a little bit of this awkward adolescent phase, right, where there's growth in all sorts of different dimensions, uh, but it's, it's maybe not quite as coordinated or comprehensive as it could be. Um, the good news is data is improving minute by minute, day by day. Uh, companies are issuing much more complete and relevant uh, ongoing primary data. Um, as, as Martin pointed out, you know, Just Capital and other organizations are complementing that with different types of data that are more real-time in nature and a little bit less backward-looking. Um, and then we also have a, a sea of unstructured data, uh, which sometimes is, is not included as part of this conversation. But I think it's really important when we're looking at what you have to work with as a sustainable investor to look at that, at that structured third-party set of metrics, which is a, a really important asset for all of us to have to work with. But to think of that as one piece of a, of a much bigger ocean of data that we have to work with. And again, as, as a fundamental investor, where we try to focus our attention is where are the areas that we can take that data and add the fundamental context and the long-term orientation that we have at Putnam to really uh, create an added investment insight that, that is relevant for us and our shareholders. And so one of the interesting things when we step back is various companies and various industries are at different points in the journey of either reporting or uh, shifting their business model to be a bit more sustainable. And so can you talk about how you, how you evaluate that? Um, how do you weigh investing in companies or stocks that have a well-established ESG thesis and which presumably would already be priced in? versus companies whose direction of travel is, you know, towards more of a sustainable story. They're just not quite there yet. Yeah, I think there are a couple layers there to explore. Um, one is that sometimes the gap is, is truly um, just a gap of form. So the substance of what a company is doing is actually pretty terrific. But um, as, as Mark just alluded to, a lot of companies haven't quite told their whole story <laughs> yet. And so, um, pretty often by just doing, again, thoughtful primary fundamental research, we can close that gap in terms of understanding what's really happening at a company versus what they are formally reporting through, through different frameworks. So that's one piece of analysis that's really fruitful. Um, the other element that's, that's important, and it's already been alluded to in this conversation, is thinking about materiality. Um, all ESG disclosure is not created equal. It's not all equally relevant. And so looking at frameworks like the SASB framework that tries to give us a starting point for thinking about 
you know, what are the questions that are important if you're looking at a software company? And, and they should be different from the questions that you're looking at if you're, if you're examining a steel company or a chemical company. Um, so having that tailored approach to materiality and really integrating that in with our core fundamental process has, has been a key. I do think it's really important um, for, for active managers to have a process that is not so rigid that it screens things out from the very beginning if there's a company that's dramatically improving, whether it's improving in substance or disclosure, or if there's a company that is working towards having meaningful positive impact. Um, an easy example for our portfolios, our Sustainable Leaders Fund owns um, a, a very select number of utilities, and they currently are pretty carbon-intensive companies. But the reason we own them is that they are also the biggest shifters moving from those carbon-intensive generation assets to renewable assets. This has obvious massive environmental benefits as we model out the future. Um, it also has fantastic uh, financial and strategic benefits to the company. So those are the kinds of opportunities from a fundamental active perspective that are, are really intriguing to us. So that's a great example. And for companies who find themselves with a, whether it's a higher carbon footprint um, or other characteristics that, you know, in a very black and white simplistic way of looking at the world are a quote unquote worse ESG investment. What tips do you have for those management teams to get their story out, uh, to get their story out, to show the world that they are transitioning and moving in the right direction so that they can attract investment from people like you? Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time talking with management teams who are looking for, for guidance on this front. And the, the number one thing I want to convey to all management teams is um, you, you do have a choice here. Um, I, ideally, uh, sustainability is not just an endless pile of paperwork and bureaucracy. It, it's actually part of the ongoing company strategy, part of what's going to make your company great. Um, and so to have that integrated view and to decide where you are going to focus and just as importantly, where you're not going to focus and to be able to convey that clearly, I think is really key um, for, for all of us, including asset managers, you know, the, the paperwork of ESG could bury us all and it could easily start to dwarf the, the whole substance and the purpose behind focusing in this area in, in the first place. And so I would encourage any company to just start with that internal strategic alignment um, choose your, your own clear priorities, be informed for sure by all of the inbound questions that you're getting, but choose your own, your own priorities, your own decisions, your own metrics, and, and then be clear and transparent in telling your own story. That's helpful. That's helpful. And, and so maybe drilling down a little bit into metrics and KPIs specifically, and similar question that we asked Mark earlier, for areas that you think drive value but are potentially less easily quantifiable, and I think anything on the S category certainly qualifies here, how do you go about quantifying that and, and, and incorporating that into your analysis? Yeah, as, as Martin alluded to, the, the S arena is one that is, is kind of wide open for more complete information, and there are lots of ways to, to kind of fill in that white space. Um, there are definitely some opportunities to have more quantitative metrics on this front, but just to give you an example of where we are right now, um, if you're interested in uh, diversity and inclusion on a team with the premise that uh, diversity and especially diversity of thought actually helps companies to be more adaptable, better at problem solving, uh, more able to deal with circumstances like the ones we're seeing right now, kind of unforeseen and really challenging ones. Uh, 
that's a great that's a great investment premise. There's lots of uh, work to back that up from uh, both a qualitative and quantitative perspective as as being a worthwhile uh, premise to pursue. And then you look at the structured data and what's available. And what can I tell you about diversity? I can tell you the number of women on a board uh, and women on a leadership team. Like, okay, that's a good start. I care about both those things, but that's such a small fragment of the question that we're really trying to investigate. So again, supplementing that with all sorts of other data is really key. And maybe most importantly, although this is qualitative, um, I really do want to emphasize it, it's not just the what of these metrics, it's, it's the how. So in this current environment, for example, um, as has already been noted, we're all very focused on, on S issues of various sorts and lots of companies are having to make truly painful and difficult decisions. Um, there seems to be a premise sometimes, I think, that if you're interested in sustainability, you sort of wish away all the difficult business decisions that exist in the world. And it's it's kind of the opposite. It's all the more important to understand those decisions in their complete context. And so we've all seen vivid examples these last few weeks of companies that have fired thousands of people on a conference call hosted by a stranger. And we've also seen examples of companies going way above and beyond to help their employees bridge to other opportunities that are um, going to be, you know, fruitful career paths for them elsewhere. On paper, if I look at my earnings model, those two things might look exactly equivalent. It's the same number of people. It's the same basis points coming out of operating costs over the next six months. But if I extend that time horizon just a tiny bit to a year or two years or three years, the implications of how that action was taken are really important and, and they tend to dwarf actually the initial action itself. So combining the qualitative and quantitative is something we spend a lot of time on. Thanks for that. And, um, you know, maybe pivoting just a minute in terms of, you know, how management teams are thinking about their, their own out capital allocation strategies. And, you know, we've heard concern from various management teams around well, if I allocate my capital towards a quote-unquote ESG-friendly strategy, I may be increasing my cost structure in the near term or somehow making myself less competitive versus my peers. And then it gets into a discussion around fiduciary duty and are they, you know, are they, are they maximizing profits. And so can you talk about how you think about that tension? Clearly, time horizon short-term versus long-term is a piece of this, but would love to get your thoughts on that specific challenge that management teams sometimes face. Yeah, this has been a really important discussion. Uh, it's perpetually an important discussion, but it's even sharper right now with um, with the difficult conditions that we're facing. What's been really interesting to work through with the companies that we're invested in and involved in researching is using this set of circumstances as a as a terrible and unwelcome, uh, but really important test of the initial strategy. And this is true on a portfolio level as well. Um, here was our initial plan. What is it that needs to be adjusted in that, that plan? And what I find is um, every once in a while, your premise is a true one. Uh, there were things that are expenses that actually in the current environment look more like costs than investments. And those um, maybe move into the optional category as opposed to the required category. Um, one test for how thoughtful a sustainability strategy is, is how much of the total activity is in that optional sort of luxury bucket and how much is really deeply tied to the core ongoing strategy of value creation in a company. Um, it's not like that first bucket is gonna be zero in any circumstance, but what we're really looking for is companies where 
their investments in sustainability are exactly the investments that are making the company stronger over time. That's not automatically the case. It's not always the case. But when it is the case, it usually indicates a really interesting opportunity for, for our specific portfolios. And so that's what we're listening for and kind of working through as we look at how companies are adapting to these current strategies, uh, current circumstances. Got it. And, and so maybe one final question. There's a lot of management teams on the phone today. And so what would you offer up in terms of advice, best practices that you haven't already hit on in terms of engagement and disclosure? Sure. So I think we've, we've touched on a couple of key elements. The idea that you, you have the choice to be proactive, uh, to look at this whole series of questions as a strategic set of questions and not sort of administrative or, or bureaucratic questions. Um, so that proactive value creation uh, kind of mindset is something that I think is, is kind of liberating uh, and really opens this up to be a more strategic exercise in, instead of just a business chore. Um, the other element is I think you do have a chance to really think about that time horizon element that you mentioned a couple of times, Rebecca, this, this short-term, long-term. There are a lot of things in the sustainability world that are sort of clever. You know, they're they're marginally positive. They look really good. They might lead to a great press release or, you know, sunny coverage somewhere. Um, but those really pale in comparison to some of the things that are a few layers deeper where you need to make an investment over multiple years in many cases, not just at the surface level, but in the, in the deep levels of, you know, process and decision-making, the this, this stuff that is hard to see from outside any organization. But those are the investments that tend to really pay off over the long term. And instead of just being clever, they're, they're wise. You know, they really are creating deep value. And so I know that that's a challenge to think that way. It's a challenge to communicate it for sure. Um, but if we're all really focused on long-term, you know, risk mitigation and alpha generation, uh, again, both financially and, and in terms of positive impact on the world, it's those, those deeper layers that are going to come to the fore. And, and there's really no better time than, than the middle of a crisis that's causing us to question a lot of foundational premises to, to revisit the key sustainability questions for, for any organization as well. Thanks, Catherine. One of the things I've heard you say, which um, I think sums it up well, is when we can move beyond just the box checking compliance exercise that many people view this and, uh, and viewing it as a way to express strategy and long-term creation. That's when we know everyone will have done their job. Uh, so, yeah, Catherine, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. And, John, back over to you. Great, thanks, Rebecca, and, and again, thanks, Mark and, and Catherine. So, um, John Goldstein, um, interested in kind of wrapping up with you. I think you can provide some interesting perspectives, both from the investor side and the corporate side, since you spent kind of your your um, previous years as an investor within Print Capital and now at Goldman Sachs, um, advising corporate management teams on uh, ESG policies. So. Um, over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, you've been talking about how COVID has been a stress test for sustainable finance. Um, Mark highlighted a little bit in his comments the outperformance of ESG funds in the crisis. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of sustainable finance uh, flows, focus, et cetera? Great. And, and, and first of all, just thanks. Thanks, everybody. And I actually have a bit of a tough act to follow because I think we've gotten a lot of great insights from, from folks so far. And I think one thing I'd call out before John answering your, your question is one of the things that's striking about this conversation, and I think in a good way, no one needs a glossary 
for this phone call, right? This is not a separate language. This is not a whole separate discipline. This is a business and investment conversation um, with all that goes into it. It's complex. It's ongoing. It unfolds, but it's core. It's not separate. You know, it's focused on the things that are meaningful. And I love Catherine's quote. This is focused on, you know, not what's clever, but what's wise, right? And I think that, that hopefully is one of the broad takeaways from this. But I think, John, to your question, look, you know, I, I think going into this moment, you know, a lot of people not unreasonably said it felt like ESG and sustainable finance were at, a, a, at sort of a peak moment in a hype cycle, right? You, you, you had mentions, attention, focus, you know, everywhere, including, dare I say, relative to what we're doing right now, podcasts. Um, but, but, but I think the question a lot of people had is, is this a bull market phenomenon? Can this discipline take a punch? How will things hold up in, in, in harder times? And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we all, we all got that uh, in, in the first quarter. And I think we really looked at three things to see how this discipline did during that stress test. And a lot of this echoes what I think other people have experienced. But we looked at three things, performance, flows, and client focus. I think performance, I think Mark talked about what they've seen in their data in terms of 90% of the funds outperforming. I think Morningstar's published data, you know, 44% of ESG funds were top quartile in Q1 versus 11% in bottom quartile. Similarly, as Mark said, one thing that's really important is getting under the hood of, of, of what, what's behind that, which is, you know, the energy sector played a role, but actually the biggest single factor driving that uh, was security selection. Right. And so in terms of performance, you know, 24 out of 26 index funds outperformed just the data showed. And, and, and look, this is a short time period. But to the question, the hypothesis that this would wilt in a downturn is not borne up by the data on performance. Similarly, on flows, I think, you know, Mark talked about the broader picture of the flows they've seen. But I think, you know, the, the, the field got record inflows in Q1. And actually, one of BlackRock's uh, ETFs, out of all equity ETFs on the planet, the second highest inflows went to one of their ESG ETFs for the second week of April, for example. You know, flows have continued to be resilient. And I think, look, we've seen those grow, you know, over, over the years from, you know, when we look a couple years back from, call it, 3 to 4% of passive flows to 7%, almost a quarter of passive flows, right? And, and, and I think, so performance has held in, flows have held up and actually even accelerated. And the third point is focus, just in terms of client conversation. I think that's gone in, in the stages to some degree that have mirrored how we've seen. And, and, and look, within our group, we work with our corporate clients, we work with asset owners, and we work with asset managers. And across that spectrum, there was a short period of time people were just dealing with the day-to-day. But I think what we've seen is we're sort of back to the volume of activity, engagement, and focus from clients by really any metric uh, in terms of the, the commercial activity we're, we're going through with clients in terms of the focus, the attention, you know, particularly at the, at the senior levels, right? You know, CIOs at allocators, uh, you know, asset class heads, portfolio managers, the C-suite at our corporate clients. And so that engagement, and there's an interesting chart actually Bloomberg just published, which, you know, going into last year, they showed sort of media mentions of this field, you know, going up, 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 back to the nervousness about the hype cycle. Well, they've updated it. And it shows something that really parallels what our own experience is. There was a little slowdown, a little dip, and then that trajectory has really come back. And so I think the focus and engagement, I think, look, reflected by the number of people on this call, the demand for this, I think has continued. So, you know, it was a field that, frankly, I think needed a stress test, right? It needed to show it could take a punch, and it needed to burn off some of the chaff. Right. And everyone here has mentioned we can drown in the paperwork 
And there is this important process of separating out what, you know, boxes to tick versus strategies to have, right? You know, uh, reports we're told to write versus telling the story we really want to tell. And I think this in some ways is a useful way to burn off some of the chaff because, you know, on the one hand, we're clear on why this matters and we have less time for stuff that doesn't. So, John, I think that, that last point is kind of interesting in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the shift in, in focus. Obviously, you spent, you spent a lot of your time with corporate management teams, and I think maybe you know, ahead of the crisis, kind of large strategic you know, dialogue on ESG corporate policies, and maybe over the last couple of weeks, maybe more of a, a crisis line uh, in, in, in talking with clients. What, what do you see changing? What, what part of the kind of corporate ESG policy best practices have you seen work is advertised? Where has it fallen short? Yeah. Where do you see a shift in focus? Maybe, you know, is, is everyone now shifting all their focus towards S and leaving the E behind? What are you seeing? Yeah, it was funny. I, one of, one of our, our senior leaders asked me, you know, is, is, is uh, you know, E taking a backseat to S? Uh, in this time, a lot of people have talked about the rise of the S. And look, Martin and Just from very early on have talked about the importance of that. Um, although what I said is it's not that, that E is taking a backseat to S. I think S kind of climbed up into the front seat to sit side by side, right? Um, I, I think what's happened is people are getting out of silos, they're getting out of jargon, and they're getting to these business conversations. And when you have those business conversations, it's not really about the E or the S or the G. It's about those financial levers, and I think Catherine walked through that well. I mean, we talk about it in a really similar way. You know, it's not about which acronym. It's, is this about risk? Is it about growth? Or is it about efficiency and resilience? Having that thesis of, like, why does this matter? Why is this core to how I build and manage a large portfolio as an asset owner, how I'm managing a fund as an asset manager, uh, or how I'm managing my business as a corporate? And so in some ways, back to burning off the fluff, right, it kind of really focuses on what is core to my business. And at the end of the day, it looks a little different in different sectors, different industries, but these broad thrusts, and I think the way we talk about it, are kind of climate transition and inclusive growth as these broad sectors themes uh, that are shaping and having those economic impacts from risk to growth to efficiency. I think that's, you know, I think really seeing, seeing that, that, that side of it. I think the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, I think once people are out, out of kind of the immediate moment, I think two other things, dynamics we're observing. I think one is people are getting practical and thoughtful and getting out of some extremes. Because I think early in this conversation, I think we saw, you know, some investors saying, you know, having a relatively, you know, crisp view of what they wanted from companies um, that was perhaps a bit too one size fits all, right? This is a challenging environment. People face lots of different things. On the other hand, some people said, just, you know, keep things afloat. And the reality is people have found that practical middle ground. And I think Catherine talked about it well, which is, you know, to some degree getting past the what, to the how, right? People have to manage their businesses thoughtfully, both for the near term and the long term. Very different circumstances and different sectors for different companies. Um, the thing most in your control is how you manage that and how you navigate that. And I think rather than look for the kind of one playbook that all companies should follow, and there's some generic things. I think Martin's website and Just has done a good job of documenting some of the basic categories of things that we both use as investors, use as advisors, and frankly, use as we manage our own organizations. But I think really that orientation uh, in terms of being thoughtful on the how, beyond the what. So I think getting practical and thoughtful around how do we really navigate this in a way that's kind of past orthodoxy uh, and, and to the real challenges uh, of that. I think the second thing is people are, are kind of ready to get on the front foot in some cases. 
right? And I, I think, and I think you know, Matt, Matt Gibson um, on, 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 you know, from, from our organization talked broadly about the different stages as, as, as corporate leaders have been you know, going from managing the day-to-day to getting more on the front foot. And I think we certainly see that on this topic as well, that you know, folks just from navigating the day-to-day to saying, has a lot of this changed? To actually, wait, what can I do? Right. You know, we've seen this particularly with companies that have significant transitions that they want to make in their businesses. And, uh, and, and one executive told me, you know, as we were walking through this, you know, they said, look, the best time to have started this transition for our business was, you know, probably some, some years back. The second best time is probably today. Um, and and I, I think moving on to the front foot. So I, I'd say, you know, number one, it's not that, you know, environment has become less important. Um, I do think there's greater awareness of the importance of social factors, but it's really getting to that, that core. How do I think about this as a fundamental business issue? Uh, number one. Number two, realizing that the how, and I think Catherine put this really well, the how may be as important uh, as, as the what in, in, in moving forward. And three is sort of go from playing kind of defense to playing offense, kind of own that business story, own that business strategy. And if there are occasions to accelerate that in this time, uh, to seize them. Great. And maybe John, as a as a final question, um, you know, if we have this conversation um, a few months from now, and, and hopefully we're looking at the back view mirror in terms of the COVID nineteen crisis and kind of corporate response, um, what do you expect to be the kind of the key focus as it relates to sustainability in the future? You, you know, what I hope this does. And I think Catherine talked about this. We've got, and, and, and Mark referred to it as well. We, you know, we, we have, and as did Martin, everyone talked about data. What I hope this does is, is help us move forward through this data adolescence, this awkward phase where companies feel like they're asked for too many different things, for too many different people of varying degrees of relevance. And investors feel like they're waiting through an awful lot of noise to find a little bit of signal. Right? And at the end of the day, all market participants are going to be better off if we have kind of better data on fewer things that matter more. And you know, Mark talked about SASB as a good framework for that and others. And so how do we get past this data adolescence? And can we use this moment where on the one hand, the stress test has reaffirmed the importance of this. On the other hand, people don't have time to waste, right? Can that constructively be channeled uh, to where we focus on arming everybody with better data on material things? And I think in some ways there's a role for everyone in this equation to play. I think for companies, a point that was made is don't forget to tell your story, right? I, I, I think, you know, talking, I think Catherine talked about part of what makes your company great, or Mark may have said that. And I think that the recipe for that is really three things. Strategic clarity of where are these factors relevant to your prospects going forward basis strategically and operationally. Two, tell that story with numbers. And three, when you can leverage common frameworks to make it accessible, useful, and functional like SASB and TCFD, do so, right? Um, I, I think that point uh, everyone made about don't forget to tell your story is particularly important. I think realizing this is a strategic business story. It's not a separate story to be shunted off to the side. Uh, I, I think, you know, for, for investors, it's really the same thing of, you know, how do we hone in on this as a core in, you know, investing task? Right. And I think that was one of the things I said at the beginning of my remarks that, that I think this call has exemplified so well is you could take some of the selective words out of this and it would just sound like we're talking about investing. Alternative data, you know, unstructured data. You know, we, we're talking about data. We're talking about investing. We're talking about strategy. We're talking about the core things that we all do in our day jobs. Right. And I think this affirmation, this is a part of our day jobs. 
It's important to do well. As with any investing and business task, it's hard and it's complicated and it's a process, not an act. But I think everybody hopefully taking the right lessons from this, you know, and, and moving forward in a thoughtful way to, you know, get out of the data adolescence and, and get really grounded in how does this continue to add to our strategic dialogue and our insight and acumen as investors. Great, John. So I think we're at the top of the hour. So thanks to you and the and the rest of our speakers. I think, look, there's been a lot of unexpected consequences coming out of the health pandemic and certainly topics around sustainability have been no different. I think, you know, hearing from all of our speakers today, it's helped show that, you know, potentially sustainability is not just um, a bull market luxury good. Um, John, you talked about at the end about this is, you know, this has helped maybe burn off some of the fluff around ESG and got people really focused on on what matters. And I think, you know, Catherine's, you know, talk about, you know, this is not about just filling out paperwork. It's about doing and taking a sensible business approach, I think, resonates well. Um, I think, you know, also comments today, I think there remains a number of unanswered questions with respect to the state of ESG data and disclosure standards um, as divergent approaches are being developed in different regions around the world. Thanks again for joining today. Bye-bye. That's all for this week's Markets Update on Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. And in case you missed it, check out our other episode this week with Asahi Pompey from Goldman Sachs, who interviewed three entrepreneurs, graduates from the firm's 10,000 Small Businesses Program, who shared their experience applying for PPP loans, pivoting their businesses to deal with the pandemic, and leading their teams and families during a challenging time. Thanks for listening and hope everyone is staying healthy and safe. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.